two weeks ago. The sermon was entitled The Grace of Gratitude. Last week it was The Grace of Giving, and now the third in this mini-series within the larger series is The Grace of Grace. We've learned already that all giving, that all stewardship is, finds its foundation, it begins with gratitude, being grateful for what we've been given. In fact, as St. Ignatius taught us, ingratitude may be the worst sin and the source of all other sins. We learn that out of our gratitude and recognition of the gifts that God has given us, we are called to steward over them well, namely, last week, in the giving of our tithes and offerings, our finances. We've learned that our giving is to be planned and prioritized and percentage-based and progressive. Let me recommend, if you weren't here last week uh, or you missed the sermon, uh, to go and listen or watch Pastor Kurt's excellent sermon on the grace of giving. I've linked it in the Bible app live event, and you can find it on our website at ecclife.net. In each of these sermons in this little mini-series so far, Pastor Kurt and I have sought to elaborate a bit on the meaning of the word grace. And again, the Greek word for grace is charis, the root word, charis, which means grace, goodwill, favor, benefit, gift, or thanks. So this morning, I want to talk to you about the grace of grace. That is, what we are to do with the grace we have been given in Jesus Christ, how we are to steward over that grace. So do something a little strange. Before we jump in, I want to invite you to take a few seconds with me and simply notice your breath. One of the the keys to the practice of gratitude is to notice the gifts that we have been given. Um, And breathing, of course, is that kind of a gift. The graces with which we have been graced. Our breath is essential. We can't live without it. From day one to our final day, we will be breathing. So let's take about 30 seconds and notice the gift that has been given and remember that the gift has been given to us by God and choose to be thankful for it. I want you to intentionally feel it and think about it as you inhale deeply and slowly and breathe out slowly. Fill your lungs. Notice what is happening. So we're just going to take three long, deep breaths together. Breathe in. Breath is a gift. Oxygen is grace. But it's more than that. We also breathe out. And when we breathe out, it is a gift to us. It is a gift to the world in which we live. So let us give thanks for the vital oxygen that we breathe in and for the carbon dioxide that we breathe out. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. So we could outline this passage today from Titus chapter 3 this way. The first two verses are the what? Paul's instructions on how we are to live and interact with the world. The verses three through seven are the why, the theological basis for why we should live this way. And then verse eight is the win. Now this is not a win that means someone has to lose. This is a win-win scenario. We win and those whom we know, whom we live among, they win as well. Paul begins in verses one and two. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Paul is writing to people who do not have the right or the privilege to vote. 
They are under the Roman Empire, after all. Nor do they really have the opportunity to flee all that and go live off the grid somewhere. And so Paul says, you need to learn to live in such a way, in this environment, where you do not cause unnecessary trouble, where you do not draw undue attention to yourself and thus hinder the work of the gospel. And they do not slander the emperor on Facebook or Twitter either. It's in the Greek, Facebook and Twitter, it's there. But neither are they simply to be passive. They don't simply sit by while Rome burns, we might say. No, they are to be ready to do whatever is good. Ready to do whatever is good. As I was researching for my sermon, I wanted to take a look at an older translation of the NIV. And so I picked up one of my old Bibles and looked at the book of Titus and discovered that whenever I looked at this book years and years ago, that I'd underlined every occurrence of this theme of doing good. It pops up six times in Titus. Chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 7, and 14, chapter 3, verses 1, 8, and 14. So doing good, then, is a significant theme in Paul's letter to Titus. This is because of the nature of the heresy, the false teaching that he's dealing with. Apparently, as, that, as chapter 1, verse 16 says, these teachers were detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete to organize this new church that has been founded there. Crete was the fourth largest island in the Medi- on the Mediterranean Sea, and it, was a, it had a population of people who desperately needed to know and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. In New Testament times, inhabitants of Crete had the reputation of being immoral, dishonest, lazy, and gluttonous. So much so that a saying had evolved, that a a proverb that Paul actually takes and includes in his letter to Titus. Chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own poets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. (laughs) Skipping down to verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Part of the heresy then is that people thought you could come to know Christ, express faith in Christ, and then live any way you want to. This takes us back to what I've said several times before. What faith actually means in the New Testament. More and more scholars are lining up behind scholar Matthew Bates that we would do ourselves a great service if we would just start translating the words belief and faith in Christ as pledging allegiance to Christ because it's about our whole lives. The call to come to know Jesus, after all, is a call to follow Jesus, not just give mental assent to him. It's about life, and the false teachers in Crete did not get this, so Paul is rather harsh with them in this letter. Several years ago, I preached on uh, Jesus' parable of the pearl of great price. It's found in Matthew 13, verse 45. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and and bought it. And In my sermon, I shared that this is a parable about how valuable the life in the kingdom of God is and that it's worth everything we have. It It was about the cost of discipleship. 
Someone emailed me later that week and said they disagreed with my interpretation. They thought that we, human beings, we are the pearl of great price, and Jesus has given up everything to purchase us. Well, I agree with that as a statement. I disagree with that as an interpretation of the parable. And I said to this person, I'm always suspicious, at least I start there, I'm always suspicious of any interpretation of the text that doesn't ask anything of us, that doesn't challenge us in some way. It is the nature of faith, friends, that we will do good works, that we will steward well over the grace that we have received and that we share with others in our community and in the world. Beyond submitting ourselves to the ruling authorities, Paul says that we are to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to always be gentle to everyone, to all people. This is the way we are to live in the world, and this is not a passive way. This is a very active thing. It takes intestinal fortitude and a robust faith to slander no one, right? I mean, when someone makes you angry, isn't the easiest thing in the world to slander them? It is for me. It takes strength to bite my tongue. It takes energy and commitment to be peaceable, to be a force for peace amid conflict, to be considerate and gentle to all people. And this is how we are called to interact with the world. This is how we are to pursue God's purposes in the world, which is part of our mission statement, to be a community of people who know God, follow Jesus, and seek to pursue God's purposes in the world. Now, of course... If we are to become a community who pursues God's purposes in the world, we have to first have come to this place of knowing and experiencing God and seeking to follow Jesus as best we can. The grace we receive from God is meant to be passed along in the world. So Paul has given us the what of his instructions. Now he moves on to the why. Verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is who we were. This was our predicament. But our story doesn't end there. God in Christ has intervened, and God in Christ can intervene in the lives of others too. Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. First, even with all this talk about doing good, Paul is quick to say that our good works did not save us. Our good works did not save us. It was not of our doing. Our salvation is God's initiative alone. Good works follow our salvation. They do not earn it. Good works follow our salvation. They do not earn it. Second, the word love here should more literally be translated love for humanity. Love for humanity. It's the Greek word philanthropia, which we get our word philanthropy from. Philanthropia is love of all of humanity. It's God's kind of love. It is to do good, to be kind to everyone. It is to steward well over the grace we have received in Jesus Christ. It is to breathe deeply of the oxygen of grace and breathe out love for all people. All people. Third, notice that Paul refers to God's kindness and love appearing. He's talking there about Jesus as the personification of of God's love for all of humanity. 
his kindness and his grace. Jesus is the kindness and love of God. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the final word spoken by God. He is the grace of God personified and made tangible. He took on flesh and bone. Fourth, we have been saved by the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. When we are saved, the Spirit both cleanses us from our past sins and begins to renew us on the path of discipleship in which we become more and more like Christ. This is what it means to know God and to follow Jesus and to pursue God's purposes in the world. It, it means that we set out to pursue our own transformation in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Brother Lawrence, a French monk in the 1600s, urges us to continue to practice God's presence every day and to work at it. And then he says, why? Because not to advance in the spiritual life is to go backward. Not to advance is to retreat. Not to advance in the spiritual life is to go backward. It is to retreat. We pursue our own transformation because not to do so is to go backward. But why has God saved us? Why has the Spirit given us new birth and begun to transform us and to renew us? Verse 7 again. So that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. To say that we have been justified so that we might have the hope of eternal life is not to say we don't know if we'll have eternal life, but we sure hope so. That's not what this means. It is to say that because we know that we have eternal, abundant life in the here and now and in the hereafter, we have hope. Hope characterizes our lives in the world. Hope characterizes, defines our mission, fuels it. So Paul has given us the what, how we are to live. He's given us the why, God's saving action and grace toward us, and now he gives us the when. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The grace we have received is to be passed on. The way we steward over the grace we have received is by being careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good. For this is profitable for everyone. Not just those of us who gather on Sundays, not just those of us who know Christ, for everyone. I want to repeat and expand on a quote, an excellent quote that Pastor Kurt shared in last week's sermon by J. Paul Sampley. Paul's notion, he says, that we, recipients of God's grace, must pass it on, that we must finish the circle by redirecting it through us to someone else is awesome. Think about what it says about human life in its daily routine. Every encounter with another person is an opportunity to be a channel of God's grace. In fact, not to think of grace this way is probably to cheat God and certainly to cheat others. Every encounter with another person is an opportunity to be a channel of God's grace. In fact, not to think of grace this way is probably to cheat God and certainly to cheat others. God's grace is not to be trifled with or taken lightly. It comes into the world finding expression through people. Grace achieves its goal. It becomes the grace it was intended to be only as it reaches ever more and more people. 
only as it reaches ever more and more people. We, we breathe in, again, breathe in, just breathe in. We breathe in. And then breathe out. We receive grace and we pass it on. We breathe it back out into the world by doing good in the world. We breathe in oxygen, oxygen we breathe out carbon dioxide. That carbon dioxide is taken up by the plant life. That, in turn, produces the oxygen we need. The carbon dioxide we breathe back into the world actually blesses everyone. Of course, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas that helps keep the earth warm. Yes, you can have too much of it. We're not really contributing to that when we breathe out. The plants take what we breathe out, produce more oxygen, and that blesses everyone. We breathe in the oxygen of grace, we breathe out the carbon dioxide of good works, of doing good to everyone, of refusing to slander others, of being considerate and gentle to all people. This ties in beautifully to what we mean when we talk about one of our ECC touchstones of presence, welcome, transformation, and presence. And by presence, we mean that we are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. We breathe in the grace of God. We breathe out presence, our good works, our witness to the truth of the gospel and God's presence in the world in and through us. As J. Paul Sampley put it, grace comes into the world as it finds expression through people, you and me and others who have come to know and experience the grace of God. One of the most important ways we breathe the grace of God back into the world, friends, is through the practice of forgiveness. It's the most important, one of the most important, and very difficult to do. As C.S. Lewis said, everybody thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until there's actually someone they have to forgive. Consider the well-known story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, in Luke 19. Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house, you remember. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector and a sinner, an outcast, despised by all the Jewish people. And as Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house, the people, the holy ones, begin to complain that Jesus has gone to the house of a sinner. And Zacchaeus takes that moment when he hears about it to proclaim in front of them all, look, Lord, right now, right now, I give away half of all my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I'll pay back four times what I took. He breathed in the grace of God when Jesus befriended him and he breathed out a life transformed, changed, and hopefully ever transforming, a faith that was demonstrated by his good works. And then Jesus proclaimed that this, this was evidence of Zacchaeus' salvation. Today, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. This is the grace of grace. God gives it, we receive it, we give it away. God gives it, we receive it, we give it away. This is the stewardship of grace. It is what we are all called to do. It is the great, grateful response to the gift we have been given in Jesus Christ. I've shared with you before that I take part in a daily prayer exercise, praying for my neighbors. I use the Bless Every Home app and website. I get a reminder on the days I choose, at the time I choose, with the number of people that I want to pray for on that day. 
I'm reminded to pray, and I pray for five of my neighbors. I spend a minute or so, it doesn't take long, a minute or so praying for them. I simply name them before God, because most of them, I don't know what's going on in their lives. I name them before God, and I pray a general brief prayer that they would come to know Jesus or grow deeper in faith. Now, if I know something's going on in their lives, I will pray for that too. But usually, it's a minute or less that it takes. It does not require that much. Lift them up. And I want to encourage you to either use the link in your Bible app live event, which I think I created, but I may not have. Or to hold your phone's camera up to this QR code to sign up and do the same if you haven't. I want to ask you if we can become a people who more faithfully pray for our neighbors. Yes, of course, you can pray for your neighbors without the app. Of course you can. And if that's better for you, great. But I have found this to be a big help. It helps me to to remember to pray for them, and it reminds me of who they are. It's a little creepy for some if they knew that I knew the people way down the street on the corner. I know their last name. I'm tempted sometimes to say hi to them, but I, I realize they don't know that I know their last name. But that's the kind of detail you get. And you can pray for them, and you can get to know your neighbors. So I want to encourage you to do that. Currently, ECC, I checked on the website, ECC, uh, the Bless Every Home website, has 347 homes that we as a people are actively praying for. Can we grow in this? Will you accept the challenge to pray for your neighbors more intentionally? To breathe out the grace of God that you have received by breathing out prayer for your neighbors? Friends, We who have come to know Christ by faith have received the grace of God and it has been given to us freely. But it is not meant just for us or to us. It is meant to be given away. It is meant to be shared with others. We are called to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in word and deed. So what step might God be inviting you to take in response to this good news, in response to this call? What practice might God be asking you to engage in so that you might more faithfully breathe out the carbon dioxide of prayer and good works and forgiveness and witness in response to the fact that you have freely breathed in the grace of God? Would you pray with me as we close? Good and gracious God, we do indeed thank you for the grace that we have received in the gift of Jesus Christ. We take a moment to notice and give you thanks for all the ways you have gifted us and the people who are gathered around us right now in the breath that we take every day in the way we got to church this morning in the gift of weather in the gift of this campus, this building and the gift of this community. We thank you, Lord, for all the gifts, so many more. And we ask, Lord, that we would take the grace that you've given us, that we would steward well over it, steward faithfully over it, that we would breathe back out into the world. Every household present, Lord, would breathe back out into the world your goodness and grace and mercy and loving kindness and gentleness and consideration, that we would do good to all people. Lord, help us to be aware of the grace we have been given. Help us to be aware of the call upon our lives, that we have been blessed, we have been graced to do good, to speak forth the truth of the gospel, and to live in a way that is different. All because of you. 
And may you receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the uh, blessings, one of the ways to steward well over the grace of God that we have received in Jesus Christ is to make a public confession of that faith. And this morning we have the privilege and the joy of baptizing a few people, a few young people, who want to make that declaration, that proclamation to you as a community of faith. So today, Alex Neal, Bryn Neal, and Joel Wiley are all going to be baptized. They're going to present themselves to the church for the sacrament of holy baptism, and we rejoice with them in God's promises to those who take this significant step. Sisters and brothers in Christ, as God called and chose his servant people Israel and made a covenant with them, saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. So in the fullness of time, God called and chose Jesus Christ to fulfill this covenant for us all. Through his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, God made a new covenant of grace so that we can say, I am yours and the people you have given me. Today we come to claim the promises of that new covenant, rejoicing that our Savior Jesus Christ instituted baptism as a visible sign of covenant making, our washing with water by the word, our habitat in Christ crucified and risen, our bonding in water with our other brothers and sisters in Christ, our solidarity with those with whom he is in solidarity, and our commissioning to serve in Jesus' name.